Hey guys, as you know, our world is going through an unprecedented time during the COVID-19 pandemic. To strike out this virus, we, as coaches, have partnered with Fred Hutch Research Institute, who is working on the front lines to stop the spread of COVID-19. Please consider donating to hashtag coaches versus COVID, and here's a word from Hutch. Your support for Fred Hutch is a strike against COVID-19 and a step toward a healthier world. Right now, Hutch scientists with expertise in infectious disease, immunology, public health, and data science are working urgently to speed up testing, track the spread of the virus in real time, and safely test new treatments and vaccines. Your contribution to Coaches vs. COVID will help expand this urgent work. Donate now at fredhutch.org slash coaches versus COVID. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. On today's show, we have Todd Interdonato, head baseball coach at Wofford College. Todd is in his 13th season as the head coach of the Wofford baseball program. He was named head coach of the Terriers on June 26, 2007, after previously serving for two seasons as the assistant coach at Wofford. With 323 career wins, he is first all-time among Wofford baseball coaches in that category. Todd also led his program to unprecedented success with 30 or more wins in five of the last six seasons. On the show, we talk about how we can give a ton of ownership to players while holding them accountable. Todd gives us some insight into how to provide clarity to players in their roles. And we talk about how to build a team offense that is multifaceted and solely based around scoring runs. You're gonna love this episode. And here is Todd Interdonado. Todd, welcome to the show. And uh, thanks for the guests that are, that are here to experience uh, some, you know, just baseball gold today. And, and a mutual friend of ours put us in touch and Steve Johnson, who's probably one of my favorite people on the planet, just because I, I love his thought process. And I love that he's not afraid to tell the truth or what he believes is the truth. And so he, he mentioned something on Twitter uh, a little while ago that said that you were one of the more underrated coaches in the country. And I was obviously that piqued my interest. And so I, I'm excited to get to know you a little bit better today and, and welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, man. I, I tell you that um, that thing came out. My wife goes, yeah, you're underrated at work and overrated at home. That was her reaction to it. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Uh, but, but for our listeners who, who, again, want to get to know you a little bit better. <laughs> uh, sorry, that, that's pretty good. That's something that's pretty good there. Yeah, I like that. Uh, coaches' wives are the best. But, uh, but to get to know you a little bit better, can you give us a little snapshot of, you know, how you got into the game of, well, not really necessarily how you got into the game of baseball, but how you decided to get into coaching? Sure. So, you know, I was, I was a terrible player, man, uh, growing up. I didn't, didn't start on my high school team, uh, tried to go to a junior college, got cut from my first junior college, uh, had to transfer to another junior college in Phoenix, uh, kind of started getting it worked out there. And kind of every stop I went, I, every once in a while, man, I just, I feel like every stop I was at, one coach always told me, man, you, you might be able to make a pretty good coach. And, and I never knew what that meant, you know, as a player. I don't, I don't you know, I assume all of us are in coaching at, at some level. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I never knew what that meant. But now on the other side, I kind of, you know, understand, you know, some of our guys, I think, you know, maybe would make better than, than others. Certainly some guys wouldn't do any. Um, you know, played a couple years at a small division one school in North Carolina, uh, played a third of a season of independent ball before I got dumped. Um, and then just, and then, you know, I think I went through when everybody gets released, you go through the, I hate baseball phase. Uh, mine was pretty quick, man. My mine lasted about three or four days and then I was ready to get back in it. Um, got into coaching at my high school for a summer team, uh, for their summer team that was just at the high school where I went in Phoenix and, um, called, called, uh, the guy who was my head coach at Asheville at UNC Asheville, and I said, Hey man, I know, you, I know you got an open spot. I know you got a volunteer spot uh, open. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we do. And I go, okay, man, well, you know, I, I, I want it. And he's and he basically told me no over the phone. He goes, no, I don't, you know, I don't think so. And I'm like, you know, this is a guy that was the assistant when I was the player. 
you know, and he basically like was just like, nah, I don't, I don't think it's a good fit. I'm like, what? Like, I already had a good relationship with this dude. So I called him back a few days later. And I'm like, I don't think you understand, man. Like, I don't expect you to pay me. You know, I'm, I'm good with the volunteer thing. You know, this was the fall of, of one, I guess. And he says no again. And I hung up the phone and, you know, I was living at my parents' place and my mom goes, what do you say? I go, say you got the job. So this is great, man. Um, she goes, really? I go, yep. He gave me the job. So I jumped in my car and I drove from Phoenix to Asheville, North Carolina. It took me, uh, did it in two days, basically two 16 hour days. Oh. Got there on Monday and I walked in his office and I go, uh, you told me no over the phone, man, but you're going to have to tell me no to my face. That's and he awesome. goes, what, what are you doing here? And I go, I told you, man, I want to coach. And he goes, well, well, I can't say no. I go, great. What time we, what time we start? And he goes, we actually started three. And I turned around and got the hell out of there before he could change his mind. <laughs> um, so that was, that That's was awesome. basically how I got started into it. Uh, showed up at practice that day and, you know, just started coaching that year, which was the 0102 academic year. Uh, I love that. That's awesome. Where'd you go to school in Phoenix? Uh, I went to Chaparral high school. Oh, okay. So, which cool. obviously right. has a, a good amount of pro guys in it. Paul Canerco is the one that that really jumps out for everybody as an alumni nice. of Chaparral. Then I went to South Mountain Community College. Well, I went to Scottsdale and got cut. And then I went to South Mountain and they actually let me stay around. Um, so I played at South Mountain for no two kidding. years. Me too. Yep. I played for Todd uh, Easton. I don't know if, if, he, if you knew Todd at all. Maybe he was the assistant there. He, but. he finished, I think, a year or two before I got there. And then in the gap between when he finished and when he came back, I was in there. I, you know, he was the assistant. I played for George Lopez. Todd was the assistant there maybe a couple of years after I was gone, but uh, I actually learned that about you this morning, looking you up. So oh, I thought that was nice. kind of crazy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All, all good people either are from Oklahoma or go to South mountain. So <laughs> that's uh, a <laughs> good Coog nation is real though. For real. That's right. Uh, but, that's right. But anyway, so with, uh, yeah, man, that's a, that's a really cool story. And, and I, I just, um, so how did you get to Wofford? Like what were, what were your next steps? So you went to, you went to UNC Asheville and so I did you UNC basically, Asheville. yeah, I did UNC Asheville for a year. Um, and then I went probably maybe the biggest break I got was the next year I got the, the assistant job, the GA job at Gardner Webb, where I was able to get an MBA and coach for two years. And then that ran out. And I was, I mean, I was a millimeter away from get, being out of coaching, man. Nobody was, you know, I couldn't get a job, you know, nobody was hiring, um, ended up at a junior college in Kansas called Fort Scott. Um, which was a, man, that was a tough experience, brother. That was a, that was a tough nine, 10 months. Um, mm. you know, middle stuff. of no, yeah, man, no, middle of nowhere. Um, and then I was coaching the NYCBL from there. Uh, I was coaching the NYCBL and while I was in the NYCBL, uh, this job at Wofford came open as the assistant and, uh, you know, just kind of some mutual friends got connected. Uh, that's kind of a wild story how I even interviewed here, but, but we'll, you know, we can pass over that, but, Got the assistant job, was our assistant for two years uh, when I was 26 and 27. And then our head coach retired uh, after my second year here. And I was 28 and, you know, got put up with against four other people for the head coaching job. And I don't know what the hell he was doing, but he gave me the job at 28 uh, that year in summer of 07. Been here ever since. I love that. And, and so, man, 28, that's, that's, uh, wow, that's young. <laughs> God, I was so, so bad those first two years, man. Jesus so, so, Christ, I was so bad. So what was the biggest lesson you learned? Or if you could go back and tell your, you know, 28 year old self, some different things, what would it be? Uh, yell less and act more. That was, that was the one thing I always, you know, I was, I got a big voice, man. I'm, I'm just kind of a loud dude by, by nature. Um, maybe being the youngest of four boys in, in my house did that, but you know, I was always trying to correct by, by words. I was always trying to correct by, you know, you know, MF and somebody or, you know, doing that. And I just, at the end of the day, man, after a little bit, I'd realized I just needed to make more moves. You know, I needed to take guys out of the lineup. I needed to move guys down to the lineup. I needed to throw guys out of practice calmly. You know, I just needed to, I just needed to act more and, and scream less. And I just kept repeating that to myself starting in years like two, three, and four was just say less and act more, you know, basically do it that way. And I, I feel like that was a good transition. That's really good. And so you get the job at 28. And so uh, something that I really think is, is critical is I don't want to say putting your stamp on it, but it, it's kind of that. So whenever you first start, you, you, all, you almost have to be a salesman because yeah. you know, the guys signed up and they didn't sign up to, for you to be their head coach the first year. Right. And so uh, what were some of your first steps that you took to try and get really buy-in from from the guys, from the program, from just everyone on campus? And, and what did your vision look like whenever you first started? 
So it was, you know, when I was, when I was our assistant, um, you know, I loved our, our former head coach, Steve trailer, man. I, I love him. Um, you know, it was, you know, one of the academic things that here at Wofford is, is our calendar, our schedule is just all over the place. Mm-hmm. So we would be practicing. We'd always be missing, you know, we practice every day at two, three o'clock, which I thought was normal, but we'd be missing, you know, three guys on the front end, three guys on the back end, guys coming and going. And one of the big things I said was, I said, we're not practicing until everybody's out of class. And that was maybe the worst thing I did. And the best thing I did, I mean, we were practicing from six to 10 at night, every night, because guys weren't getting out of class till five or five thirty. But that was maybe the biggest fundamental change we made was, Hey man, we're just all going to be in here together. We're all just going to mm-hmm. do this. We're all going to be in here together. Um, and so it just basically kind of changed the, the level of expectation and the, and the level of commitment that it was going to take. Um, and then really, if, if I could repeat one thing I did that year that maybe saved my own ass was I brought in all the upperclassmen. I was our assistant for two years, right? So, I mean, I had relationships and I, and I brought in all the upperclassmen. I go, okay, what do you want this program to look like? You know, what, what do you want out of this program? And, you know, when you ask those questions, those guys know, man, they know we all want the same things. You know, I always find it ironic, you know, a player will come in and be like, man, I want to do this. I'm like, yeah, man, you're our left fielder. I would love for you to hit third, hit 380, be on base at a 450 clip and be an all SoCon. So we want the same things, man. Like, like I want what you want. And so what I learned with, with that process was we all want the same things. The argument always comes about the best way to do it. The, the route is always the argument the, the end goal and, and the expectation is always the same. So when, you know, when, when I had that conversation and, and anytime I butted heads with a player, which was multiple times a day, I just mm-hmm. could revert back to that meeting. You said this, man, you said you wanted to be a SOCON championship team. You said you needed the level of expectation higher. You said that we needed to work harder. This is my interpretation of us doing those things. Well, that's fantastic. And I think that, uh, that, that just, goes to show you that uh, whenever you provide some ownership to the players, obviously uh, that they're going to take ownership of that. Um, and so, and something, sorry, I'm getting on my phone cause I wrote down a note. Uh, there was, there was actually two quotes today that I heard that I thought were really good. And it was, people are likely to commit to what they help create, which is exactly what you're talking about. And then people are more likely to buy in when they get a chance to weigh in. And those are two things that, that I picked up today that I thought were extremely good. And it just, you know, goes to your point of uh, just providing ownership for the players and then holding them accountable to what they said. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it, it's something that it's almost an ego check whenever you're asking them because it's your program, you know, in quotes, uh, but you're providing ownership for the players, which it, I think that you would probably agree that it's actually their program and we're just helping steward that. Uh, but what are some different things that you do for culture building? So you, you started at 28, you've changed a lot since then. Uh, but getting the culture to where you want it to be or the environment and what you want it to look like, what you want it to feel like, what you want them to act like, what are some different ways that you go about that? I think the biggest thing that we talk about as a staff is you're never going to, you're never going to make a legitimate adjustment in one conversation. It's, it's not, it's not the bombshell conversation that, that does it. It's just the consistent message over and over and over and over again. And, you know, it's to the point where like, if, if we're struggling connecting with a player, then, you know, we will make sure that all five coaches deliver him the same message. And it's almost like if you got a guy trying to buck the system or a guy not buying in, it's like, you just want to, you just don't want to give them an out. You know, guys will just go through the line trying to find somebody they agree with. And, you know, 19 guys are against them. And then they finally find the one that they get. And they're like, see, he, he's sure. with me. And, right. but the more you can kind of box them in, that's it. And so, you know, we try to do it from a staff standpoint. And then we also try to do it. uh, We have instead of, instead of captains, we have what we, what we term a cabinet. And the main difference between captains and a cabinet is there's a representative from every class. So the guys vote on it, but it has to be, you know, there has to be one representative from every class. It can be five guys, you know, the smallest cabinet we've had is five. Uh, The biggest one we've had is 11. And, you know, then it's the same thing. Hey, what do you guys want out of this? How did you guys feel about last week's practice? And you basically just, it's a collaborative effort. We, we talk about that all the time, man. This is a two-way street. It's a collaborative effort. You get a voice. We get a voice. It, it, we can't do this without you. You guys can't do this without us. It's mutually beneficial. And so just the more those conversations happen and, you know, we meet with our cabinet about once every three to four weeks or so, we can do more often if we feel like we needed it. But it's basically just encapsulating them of where it is. And so it's not one thing. It's just that constant 
consistent message from all angles. I would tell you that's how we, how we try to attack it the most. So you're just uh, pounding the rock, pounding the stone. Pounding the rock, man. Pounding the rock. (laughs) And it's the same thing over and over again. And and the one thing that I tell our players, you know, you kind of get, you know, every once in a while I'd be like, yeah, coach, I've heard you say that before. And I go, oh, oh, you want to play for the guy that changes his mind every week? You want to play for the guy that that has a new drill every week? You want to play for the guy that has a new offensive philosophy every week? Yeah, have at it, bro. Go play for that guy. Because I can assure you when you're done, you're going to appreciate a consistent message. And, and appreciate a consistent path because I've played for those guys that go all over the place. Those guys will drive you insane. Oh, that's fantastic. I really like that. And, and so what are your values? Like what are, what are the things that, that you hold true? You're like, Hey, Hey, I want you guys to take ownership, but these are my pet peeves and these are what I want you guys to make sure that you do because it's, it transcends, you know, time or, or there are things that you feel like they need to do to be successful. So we have uh, the, the clearest answer. We have a sign in our locker room, uh, that basically gives the five qualities of a sex, successful offer baseball player. Uh, the first one's a high internal motor. Don't, don't expect me to motivate, motivate you, man. It's not my job. Not my job to motivate you. So you got to have a high internal motor. You always have to be developing. We've talked about it during this, man. This, this is not the off season. This is just a different development season. You, you mentioned it right before we got on. What can we do now before we get back? So we're always developing. The next one is we expect our guys to, to have a high baseball IQ. And we are fortunate in the fact that we have, we have a lot of smart players. You know, we got a lot of guys, 12, 13, 1400 SATs, but, but we also have some guys that are just average students, but baseball IQ is different than common sense or book smart. So we expect them to do that. The next thing we expect them to do is be selfless. And and I know that, you know, that's so easy, but the last one that's the most important one is we tell our guys to play tough And, and we constantly describe the difference between playing hard and playing tough. There, there's a difference between those two things. You know, guys think if you run hard down the line, you're, you know, you're playing tough. That, that, that's bullshit, man. That's just, that's just a, that's an expectation. Playing tough is, you know, can you throw a 2-0 fastball down the middle with the bases chucked and their three-hole hitter up in a tie game in the eighth because that's our best chance of winning. That's tough to do. You got you to be mentally tough to be able to have the fortitude to be like, yep, I'm cramming this thing middle and here we go. You know, can you keep the ball in the infield with two outs with a guy on second? And, and I can go through a, a million explanations, but we describe the difference between playing hard and playing tough all the time. Well, that's really good. And, and, and I really like those. And another thing that, that I, I've really, I, I want to get more insight into is, is how do you, you, you talked about a consistent message over and over and over and over and over. How do you consistently make those important to you? Like what, what is, if, if I'm coming to watch you guys over a month span or a week span, I probably see those, but just in an hour conversation, it's kind of hard to, to describe, you know, those and to get buy into those, but how do you make those important to the players? You got to give them data, man. You got to give them data. And, you know, so one of the things that, you know, we turned the corner uh, six, seven, eight years ago, something like that. Um, you know, consistently losing to consistently winning. And and when we flipped it, you know, I I went back and and I looked at what mid-major at-large teams do, because that's what we are, man. We're we're a mid-major team. And the constant was fielding percentage. An ERA would float anywhere between 2-2 and a 4-5. Team batting average could float anywhere between 260 and 340. Stolen bases could float anywhere between 30 and 120. But the constant was fielding percentage. Not one single team that is a mid-major will be an at-large team if they field under 970, period. It never happens. So then, you know, that was like, okay, you guys want to be an at-large team? We got to field 970. How do we field 970? We got to catch the freaking ball, man. And so from, from then on, if you watch us play and, and anybody that has played against us, you hear the phrase ball first out of our dugout hundreds of times a game. It's not turn it. It's not twist it. It's ball first, ball first, ball first. It's not got room. It's nothing. That's the only message that, that we hear and we say out of our, out of our dugout. And essentially, man, you got, you just got to stick it. And it's to the point of like, if I don't feel like a guy's buying in to that ball first philosophy, like we will get on them when the ball gets thrown around the horn that, you know, boom, boom. Hey man, when that thing comes around, I want to see you stick it. I want to see you ball first it. You know, the guy that like swipes it like, Nope give it up. And so that philosophy is just pounded into those guys over and over and over again. And the crazy thing is, is that the tighter that the situation gets, the more that is said. And that's when you know, it's really, that's when you know, it's really sinking in when, 
when you're in a nut cutting situation and those guys are repeating your best mantra and that is our ball first. And you just hear that constantly out of our dugout. Well, that's fantastic. And I think that one thing that we do as coaches and, and you've mentioned it several times is we, there are, there are things that we, you know, we need to change a little bit. Like you mentioned uh, some things that you did early in your career that you've changed on. Uh, but I, I think we also, we, we have a flavor of the day or almost flavor of the week, flavor of the year on where, where they may not know what's truly important to us. And I think that's where it sounds like you've done a really good job of keeping the most important things important, but also simple. Is that your thought process? No question, man. I was having a really good conversation with a buddy of mine uh, who's a pitching coordinator for, for the Astros. And, you know, he is, I was joking around. I said, man, every time I talk to you, I feel like you're learning a new skill. I feel like you're adding something. And he goes, yeah, man, you're, you know, you're an avid learner. And I go, yeah, but I, I never do that. And he goes, well, what do you do? I go, man, I just try to perfect the skills I have. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that he said was, he's like, well, give me an example. And this was later on. And, and, you know, for, for a head coach addressing your team is the, um, the most important thing you do. Commanding that room is, is the most important thing you do. So for me, like when I address our team, which is multiple times a day, I am just constantly thinking about how do I do that a touch better? How do I use my verbiage just a little bit different to message our team just a little different? And I just, those are the things that I focus on. I, I focus on for me, I don't really try to add new skills. Of course, man, I always want to adapt. I always want to be creative, but I'm not, I don't, I don't really care how much I understand things that I don't use. It's interesting, but, but I'm not going to waste time, you know, getting into spin rate off of the bat when I don't give a shit about spin rate off the bat. That's, that's not our philosophy, man. So like, why would I waste my time learning about that when all we care about is plate discipline, timing, and swinging at max bat speed? So let's come up with 50 messages to create plate discipline as opposed to learning 49 new, new traits. Uh, I think man, simplicity is key. And, and I love that, that you are so you know firm in the things that, that you want to do. And obviously you've had success with those. And I think that that's, that's fantastic. And I, I think it frees you up to do a few things really, really well. And, and that's something that I've fallen into the trap and, and getting to interview guys that are really good on a consistent basis. I, I am constantly, you know, chase going down rabbit holes uh, in the same way that I think a lot of us are. Uh, but another thing that, that I've really, I'm, I'm starting to get more and more into effective communication. And I think that doing this podcast has helped a ton, but also how do we, how do we read body language? How do we, how do we dig more into emotional intelligence and how do we better communicate with our players? Uh, because they're all different. And that's been a whole new animal over the last six months for me. But what's your advice on, on how we can better communicate with our players? And I know that there's so many different aspects of that. Uh, but over the, over the course of your career, how have you felt uh, that you, in those situations you talked about doing better, how have you felt like you, what are some different things that you could do to be a better communicator as a coach? So, you know, the one thing that uh, – the one thing that I really try to do is anytime I feel like I have not done as well as I could have in, in messaging our players or delivering anything to our players is I will go seek out and give more opinion and more value to a group of players. I always want, I always want to be hearing from those guys because to me, when you're not connecting, it's because to me, they're always trying to tell you something. They're always trying to tell you something, whether they agree with you or disagree with you. And they're always trying to get you to watch them. It's no different than, you know, our four-year-old girl downstairs every day. Watch me, mommy. Watch me, daddy. That, you know, players are doing the same thing. They're just not verbalizing it. And so for me, I just really think that if I'm not connecting with our players and I don't feel like my message is landing, then there's something internally going on with the team that they're trying to communicate with me. They just haven't quite had the avenue to do that. And again, man, like I'll go back to one of those cabinet meetings. I'll pull aside, I'll pull aside two, three cabinet members, you know, Hey man, I, I thought our base running session was just okay today. You know, wh what are you guys thinking, man? Where are you guys at? You know, what am I missing? And those guys would be like, 
well, yo, T.I., man, like, we were just, you know, man, we just maxed out on squats last night, and we're honestly pretty sore, and that's really on us. Like, okay, hey, man, next time you guys max out on squats in the weight room, just give me a heads up, and I can do a lot more verbal teaching than I can physical teaching. Great, thanks, man. And to me, it's never – it's always about where they are mentally and where you are mentally, not quite necessarily the words or the verbiage that you're using. Oh, that's fantastic. And one of your – one of your core covenants, or I guess um, you called them your, your values, your standards, whatever you'd like, but you talked about you you want them to develop. You always have to. Uh, you expect them to have a high baseball IQ uh, and that they need to have a high internal motor. And I think all of that comes back to putting ownership on them. I think those are really, really good. But how do you, how do you make that important to them? Like how how do you help help them to understand that you want the best for them, they want the best for them, and now I'm going to try and give you the tools to go and do that, and then I'm going to hold you accountable for that. Like, what does that look like? Because I think we all talk about we want our players to own their career, but whenever you ask them how do you do that, I think sometimes that's it depends on the player, but also sometimes I don't know if we have a plan for that. So what's your plan for that? We talk, that is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about constantly is you have to prep for the role you have, not for the role you want, because you cannot develop in this game until you're successful at the role you have. So I'll kind of switch to the pitching side of the ball because it's a little bit easier to explain. But, you know, a guy who's coming out of the bullpen for us, and, and, and I will not speak for another level, but guys for us that are successful at the bullpen, they throw two pitches for strikes in a short stint, man. They throw two pitches sure. for strikes. Right. And so when those guys are flat grinding, those guys that are bullpen guys, when we go down, those guys simply focus on fastball and their best off-speed pitch middle. That's it. And so now you take, you take the development and you shrink it. Because to me, when you have to do A, you, know, you have to do A before you do B, B before you do C. And if you're trying to swallow the whole alphabet at the same time, you're just going to spin in circles. And so a story that I like to tell uh, that I've told on one of these uh, a week or so ago, we had this kid from, from Connecticut, talented kid, came in as a freshman, you know, 88 to 91, good little slider, um, repeatable, looked like he was going to add some velocity, certainly, certainly was projectable. But that year in the, in the 2017 season, you know, that year was his freshman year. And we go down the line, we go, Reese, man, we think you got a chance to throw the pen for us. And we need you to be able to throw a fastball and a slider for a strike. So when you throw your flat ground, you need to throw fastball and sliders middle, period. We're not going in. We're not going out, up, down, and you're throwing sliders middle, not chase sliders. Everything's middle. And he looks at us and he goes, okay, explain why. And, you know, Risa 1350 SAT, and I go, because in order for you to develop, you've got to succeed. And in order for you to succeed in this role, this is what you have to do to succeed. He goes, okay, that kid now, fast forward three years later, is now 90 to 93 added a third pitch as a changeup and was starting on Friday nights for us. And I truly believe that if he would have tried to take on the Friday night prep that first fall, he would have never hit that step B. He would have never gained that confidence. He would have never been in the right mindset. And he'd eventually just spun for two, three years as opposed to progressing. So for us, it's prep for the role you have, not for the role that you want long-term. So really it's just, and this is something that I'm picking up from you. You want every individual to have a super clarity of purpose of what they can do to help. Could, could not be more clear, man. Could not be more clear. And the thing that, you know, that you mentioned earlier was, you know, they, they have to create it. They have to create it. So every single one of our players will sit down with one of our position coaches and they will go through and they will, you know, they're required to come in with a notebook, come in with thoughts. Hey man, what, where, what are you doing at your best? Who are you at your best? And they come in and they say, you know, I'm a high on base percentage guy. Okay, well, if you're a high on base percentage guy, man, you're going to have to be really, really good with your pitch selection and BP. So when I'm on you about, you know, if we're working middle away and you go middle in, I'm going to be on you for it because you said you got to be high on base guy. So now mm -hmm. we're doing this. Same thing with the pitchers, man. And so these guys are basically writing their own stories and then we are helping them do it. And of course, and, and the beautiful thing about it is, and maybe some, you know, when, when we first started doing it, I'm like, oh shit, man, like, you know, this guy and me have never quite, you know, we're like 80% there. I, I'm really scared of what he's going to say because when I'm to say this, I'm giving him maybe more ownership than I want to give him as a coach. 
And honestly, if, if you are, if you're not giving them the ownership and you're not in line with what they're thinking, that's your fault as a coach. That's not their fault as a player. That's you're not understanding them as a player. So you've missed something. So for me, you know, my fear turned into insecurity. Well, if this guy tells me something that I didn't know he was going to say, that's my fault as a coach, not his fault as a player. I, I didn't know that player well enough. And so now these guys develop their own systems and their own habits. And it just makes the, it just makes the accountability so much easier. And we want everybody to be, to be different. And the guys that, the guys that we see that outperform their talent are the guys that know prep and perform to their skill sets the clearest it's not the guy that hits the most doubles it's the guy that runs well that never hits the ball in the air and it's the guy with a hundred plus bat that can't run that never hits the ball on the ground it's not sure. one or the other it's just those guys matching their approach to their skill set and the more you can let them decide what it is and then you can help them play into that the, the auxiliary benefits are going to come on the side of that you don't have to focus on the next skill you have to focus on the skills that you have. Do you ever get any pushback from that? No, nah, man. Our guys Good. love it. Good. Our guys love it. Our guys love being able to write their own their own story. They they love it in the fact that they feel like we are now their assistant. Mm-hmm. We feel that, you know they feel like we are now working for them as opposed to them trying to perform for us. And you know it's it's one of those things where it's just. I mean, think about it, man. We were all players at one point. If you had your head coach say, hey, come to my office and tell me what kind of player you want to be. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That sounds great, man. I'm going to do everything I can to help you become that player. I'd walk out of there pounding my chest, man. I mean, when, when, you know, when I was playing, it's, yo, Todd, you got to do this and you got to do this. And in order to play here, you got to do this and you got to do that. Yeah, man, there's, there's definitely some things that we have some absolutes in our program that guys have to do or they don't play. But those are, those are mindset things. Those are effort things. Those are toughness things. Those aren't skill development things. Well, that's fantastic. Well, let's go ahead and talk. Let's talk about some offense stuff. I, I know you guys are, are known for stealing bases, but at the end of the day, and this is a baseball absolute, so you guys write down your notes. If we score more runs than the other team, we win right? So if we can do that consistently, I think we're going to be okay. But talk to us from a, you know, a head coach's standpoint, obviously wins, runs, developing players. uh, We've hit on all of that stuff. But again, at the end of the day, it's about scoring more runs than the other team. So how are you guys going about that and using base running as a tool to be able to do that? Because off the mic, you talked about, hey, if it doesn't help us win, then it doesn't matter. So I'd love to, to, for you to reiterate that to our guests. So, you know, basically the conversation that we were having, um, you know, and I see Josh on here, Josh and I worked together for a couple of years. Um, you know, basically when, when he got here, um, the bottom line is if you're not doing something to help win, then it, it doesn't matter. Okay. Stats don't matter. Stats only, there's only one stat that matters and you're either, what you're teaching is either helping you win or it's taken away from you winning. And so for, for me, man, I don't, I don't care how many bases we steal. I care how many runs we score and I care how many runs that we prevent to, to win. So to me, I'm not, you know, guys will look at us and be like, Oh my God, man, you, you know, you, you're always in the top of stealing the, you know, stealing base in the country, but, but that doesn't matter to me, man. It's about winning. And so for me, it's, it's not the base running to me. And I think one thing that we try to implement in the first practice of the year is it's not how many bases can we steal. It's what kind of disparity can we create base running defensively and offensively. We're trying to out hit the other team. We're trying to out pitch the other team. We're trying to out defend and we're trying to out base run. So for us, one thing that I think we work on just as much, if not more than stealing bases is preventing it. So like I I know our stats, you know, this year, I know we stole 47 bases this year. We gave up seven. Okay. So the disparity of those two is what we're trying to create. So from there, it's, basically explaining to both sides of the ball, not just the offensive side, to both sides of the ball, this is why guys run. These are the situations the guys like to run in. This is when they're going to be successful. This is when they're going to fail. This is how we prevent it. This is how we exploit it. And it's basically just a constant message. And to us, it's, you know, there is just as much punishment for not taking 90 feet that was there as there is for getting thrown out. I'm not cool with you getting thrown out. 
you know, it's not okay, man. Like you just running into it to an elephant out. That's not okay. It's not, you know, you don't get the pat on the ass cause you tried hard, man. Like this isn't the try hard league. So you got to figure out a way to do it. Okay. And so for us, it's either, if you make it out on the bases, that's just as bad as if you left 90 feet out there on both sides of the ball. And so for us, it's just trying to create that disparity between the two. And then really the auxiliary effect that it has, it's auxiliary for the players. But for us, it's our primary goal is you're trying to take the pressure off. You're trying, you're trying to make it easy on your offense. One thing that we talk about all the time, a constant message on the offense is do your one ninth, do your one ninth. This isn't, this isn't the big leagues. We're all not trying to set up the middle of the lineup. Everybody's got a part to do and we got to do our one ninth. Well, if all you're asking a guy to do is to get on base or all you're asking a guy to do is driving a guy from third with less than two outs, those are, those are much easier tasks than, Hey man, there's a guy on first with one out. And until you hit a double, he's not going to score. And even if you hit a double, we're probably gonna have to get another base hit behind that. And so the base running takes pressure off of it and, and you end up allowing guys to do their one ninth. And so the base running is really just basically a pressure relaxer for your offense. And, and it's obviously, you know, worked for us, but the thing about it is if, if we were sitting here at, at three and 14, it doesn't matter how many bases we steal, man. I love that. Now tell me more about the one ninth. <laughs> So, you know, everybody understands the fraction, right? Like, you know, everybody understands the one, the fraction. The, the do your one is, you know, it's basically just a, it's just a team philosophy. And, you know, we talk about, and one thing I believe in as much as anything, maybe more than anything, is you cannot succeed at the amateur level without the support of your teammates. You can't. It's physically impossible. I have seen professionals do it. You know, we've all seen professionals that their teammates hate them and they still can succeed. You can't do that at this level. You have to have the support of your teammates. Well, how do you get that? Okay. From the offensive side, answering your question specifically, it's you got to do your part, man. You, you have to do your part. And doing your one ninth is whatever that situation calls for. And one of the messages that we beat into our players is it's not what your ego needs. It's what our situation needs is what we're asking you to do. When guys are struggling, they want to feed their ego, man. They want a result. They want to hit. They, you know, they want to basically feed their own ego. Well, in that situation, man, if you're struggling, you got to do something to help us. Okay. You've got to do something to, to get it, to get us on the board. You got to do something to reach base. And so for me, man, it's one of these things where if you're just asking guys to do their one ninth, all of a sudden that situation comes up and we'll do a lot of film review, which I know is, is, is maybe a little bit different in baseball. And I don't mean film review of like mechanics. Like we don't do a lot of mechanics. We do a lot of game film review. Okay, in situational film review with our team. In fact, that's one of the things we've been doing the most uh, in this time is, is game film review. And it's okay, what do we need in this situation? What is our mindset in this situation? Where are we at? Where, what, what's our timing? What's our pitch selection? Can break this all down for me. And so for me, the one ninth is just basically having those guys funnel into the game as opposed to feeding their own ego of what they need. I like that. Uh, I've heard 20 square feet. 20 square feet before uh, I've never heard one ninth, but I, I, that makes a whole lot more sense. And uh, again, so teaching an offensive approach and that, that can encompass so many different things, but I, you know, we're in the era of hyper individualization, which is really good, but uh, also how do, you know, again, you get, you guys are really good on, on the total offense, not just at hitting bombs or stealing bases or, and doing both of those independently you have been able to score a lot of runs on several different facets. So uh, if we could steal some different ways that you're teaching that, uh, I'm, I'm sure it comes down to what your team has, what your team is good at. But how are you, besides the one-ninth, how are you teaching those really on a daily basis? Or, or just, I, again, I'm looking at this from like a holistic standpoint of team offense. So, I mean, what, what are some things that you're like, okay, we've got to do, do these things really well to score a lot of runs? So the, the three things that, that we stress all the time as an offense in this order is swinging at the right pitch, being on time, and swinging at max bat speed. And any time, and I know there are some phenomenal, phenomenal hitting coaches who are really good at breaking down mechanics. And I feel like JJ, our, our hitting coach, I feel like him and myself, we can break down mechanics with the best of them. I talk mechanics less than 3% of the time, okay? And one thing that we adjusted to 
within the last few years is we changed from swing rounds to pitch rounds. It sounds, it sounds maybe too simplistic, but it's no more five swings. Hey man, you got five. When we tell our guys, man, we're doing rounds of five, it's five pitches. And so a good take is just as important as going after the right pitch with a swing. And so the reason that the reason that we really try to, at least for me, and I won't, I won't speak for anybody else, the guys that I see who are not, not in tune with their mechanics, which is obviously good guys who are obsessed with their mechanics, they want to swing. The more you're obsessed with your swing, the more you want to practice that, the more you want to swing and the more you end up swinging. And the guys that are obsessed with their mechanics, typically in, in my experience, I've seen those guys plates discipline go out the window because they're constantly worrying about their mechanics and where their swing is. So for us, we just get into pitches and something that we added within the last couple of years is in when I throw like in the rounds that I throw is every time a guy goes through a round, whatever we're working on. Okay. And, and one of my favorite is, is we call it split timing. Okay. It's fastballs away and, and hangers in. Okay. Cause we feel like that's basically the same timing. So split timing is, is a constant for us. And simply after every time they take or swing, I ask them to say yes or no. And yes means they made the correct decision and yo me, no means they didn't. They could take, yes. They could swing, yes. And all of a sudden, and I don't ever tell those guys, you, you are right or you are wrong. It's no. Why, why no? Uh, I was looking middle of the way, man. I thought that was kind of in. Okay. And most of the time they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. But we just constantly ask for that feedback. And it's just constant plate discipline over and over and over again on a daily basis. And basically, after that, hey, man, were you on time? Yep. Okay. You swing at max bat speed? Yep. And essentially, man, you do those three things consistently, I'll take my chances. You swing at the right pitch, you get on time, and you swing at max bat speed, I'll take my chances. Because I think everybody in baseball will tell you that, yeah, there are some core, there are some core traits for good hitters. But, man, we've seen a ton of different mechanics produce really good hitters, and we've seen a ton of different mechanics produce really bad hitters. And those are the three main areas of focus that, that we sit on are right pitch, on time, and max bat speed. I love it. Now, what do you, what do you do as far as base stealing uh, goes? Do you guys have a system uh, that you guys run everyone through? Uh, is it how fast the guy is versus if you got yeah. some donkeys? Uh, I mean, just kind of walk us through it if you don't mind or teach us how you teach it. So basically everybody has a conditional green light and is the way it goes and everybody's green light is different okay so you know basically guys that are really reactive and really spry their green light is going to be a little more forgiving than a guy who's not okay so what does that look like how do you teach a guy to to have a conditional green light okay so the most basic way to explain it is we just have a few different factors their lead their speed the pitcher's time to the plate that's basically it and kind of come up with a mathematical formula of to label each one of those guys. And then they can just do some simple math in their head. And they realize if the term that we use is matched up, if they're matched up minus one, plus one, whatever. And those guys know. So it, it all started for me, you know, back in, back in 2009, we were at Georgia Southern and we were in a situation I was coaching third and this was maybe my second or yeah, my second year as head coach. And there was the guy at first base and I'm going, okay, baseball, is saying it's time to run okay it's you know it's a tie game it's in the eighth we're in the nine hole it's a two strike count baseball is telling me that we need to run and i'm looking across the field i'm going this dude's out like he's out and i don't know why but if he takes off unless this ball goes into center field he's out okay so i don't really care what the game is telling me i'm just looking at this i'm going this dude's out well then fast forward that was friday fast forward it's it's sunday and baseball is telling me that I'm an idiot to run. We're down seven to three. It's in the seventh. We're in the middle of our lineup. And I'm looking third base to the pitcher, to the runner. I'm going, unless he falls down, he's safe. I know he's safe. And I don't know why, but I know he's safe. And so from that weekend on, that was, that was March of 09 at Georgia Southern. From that weekend on, I basically tried to come up with quantifiable numbers of why I was seeing what I was seeing. And so the analogy that I've used before is, you know, we're three hours from Atlanta, okay? If it's raining in Atlanta and it's not raining in Spartanburg, well, at some point it's raining and not raining, right? Like where's, where's the tip of the roof? And so for me as a coach, it was my job to dig in to figure out where's the tipping point for every runner with every situation. 
And we feel like we've kind of gotten our hands around that, you know, in the last four or five years of, and of course there's no absolutes, man, things change in game. And I can go on a, a rant about that forever, but you know, we're basically trying to find that tipping point of every runner and we've been able to find it. And so guys, all of a sudden they come in and they go, you know, our guys come be like, ah, I don't steal bases. And one of his teammates be like, oh, you'll sneak like eight or 10, man. Don't worry. We'll, we'll find that. We'll find some time for you. So we're basically just calculating their speed, their reactionary skill, pitchers time to the plate and their distance of lead and pounding into those guys, what they're reading and allowing them to make the decision uh, is really what it is. And, you know, if we, you know, if we steal X number of bases on a year, I would tell you that 95% of them, I, I didn't put on a sign. I love that. So uh, another thing that that's popping up in the chat a little bit is uh, recruiting and just some of the different challenges that you have. I know it's a, it's an extremely high academic school and you're literally right in the middle of ACC, SEC country and with some other, you know, really good schools around there. Uh, but how, you know, in, in a nutshell, how do you recruit? What's your process behind it? And uh, do you have to look for a certain types of players in regards to what you guys or what fits for you guys? I think, I think that's really the one thing that, that has helped propel us is, is the willingness to say no to a player because he doesn't fit, because he doesn't fit. And that's been really our, our biggest thing is, is, you know, there's a lot of good players out there, man, that, that, that our assistants will go watch and you're like, that guy's a really good player, but he just does not fit us. And the fit for us is athleticism and character. Those, those are the two things, man. A guy has to be athletic. And the, the position that is really hard for us to recruit is catchers because there's just so few good athletic catchers that can stay behind the plate and can run and can play another position. But we will just, I mean, the, the number of catchers that we pass on is ridiculous. And, it, and it's almost laughable of the guys that we pass on and then the programs that they end up at. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, we pass on this guy and now he's starting at Coastal. You're like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. well, you know, whatever. <laughs> Coastal's obviously won a national championship and we haven't. And so that's really the ability is just sticking within that framework. And then really in the last few years on the pitching side of the ball that I really feel like has helped us is we have just said F projectability. Like we've, we've just screw it, man. They, they can either pitch for you or they can't. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't professional baseball. We're not trying to project what a guy can do four or five years down the line. This guy can either help us right now or he can't. And so we go back to, you know, size has gone out the window. A lot of stuff has gone out the window. Uh, our velocity, you know, expectations have gone down and the expectations of what strike percentage they throw has gone way up. And so, you know, the story I like to tell is we have a kid who's a sophomore for us right now. I guess he was an 18 grad and we went and watched him pitch and he was on a good travel team playing at Lake Point, you know, where everybody goes and he's five foot seven, five foot eight, 175 pounds and was 85 to 86, a little slider, and a little change up. And we were drooling over him and guys would walk in, watch him, turn around and walk out. And from our perspective and me and Seth, and we're like, this is our number one guy because all he did was throw strikes, man. He was throwing 75, 78% strikes throwing his off speed for 70% strikes, throwing two strike strikes through the roof. And we're like, this is our guy. And we'll fast forward next year as a freshman, you know, we were able, we were the two seed last year and Sanford was the one seed. And that kid beat Sanford straight up uh, in the conference tournament to basically put us in the conference championship game as a freshman. And those values just able to stick with those, because it's so easy to go, Oh man, that kid's six, three and he's long and it's loose. And if you clean this up, you screw that man he can either help you or he can't and so the projectability for pitchers has just is just it's gone man they can either do it or they can't cool no and i love that again you're finding ways to win within the constraints that that you have uh and, and so i i think that there's a lot of wisdom in that and i'm sure i'm sure you found that out over time uh but as far as um, as, as the guests go guys, if you, I know there was a bunch that came in later. If you guys have any questions, we're, we're getting to the end, but we'd love to, uh, to hear your thoughts on some different things that, that you guys want to hear. But, uh, I've got a couple quick hitters for you. And this is, this may be my favorite question because it's practical. And so say you had practice tomorrow, which man, I wish we all did. Uh, you showed up and you're like, Hey guys, we're doing this today. They, they love it. Like, you know, that this drill or this, this, this drill series 
or this thing that you go over that they, that they just, they get really excited about, what would that thing be? So we have a, it's ironic because I think the thing that they thrive in the most is this thing that they see it on the practice schedule and they go, oh shit, um, which is our offensive competition drill. And essentially what it is, and it's, and you can make it as intense as you want, but so I'll try to explain this as well as I can. Okay. You got, you got sure. four teams, four teams of four. Okay. You got four teams of four, two teams are on defense, obviously covering the eight positions. You got one group running bases and one group on offense. Okay. The group running bases, everybody starts at first base. Okay. The guys at the plate, they get five swings, one round through, and they see how many times they can score that guy from first base within that five swing round. Okay. So if, so to give an example, Guys on first base, guy hits a single to left center, the hitter stays put, that runner goes first to third, that runner's now on third, and he's trying to drive him in, okay? So you don't add any base runners, it's only one base runner at a time, okay? Last swing is coming out, so if they jump ship, then it counts as two runs instead of one, okay? The, the, the batter runner is live on the last swing. They do one round with guys from first, then all the runners move to second, and you do the exact same thing. Five swings trying to guide, drive the guy in from second. Basically do that, one runner at a time, Runners all go to third, same thing, trying to drive the runner in from third. There's always less than two outs, okay? And we always play the infield in with, with guys on third. And then basically that's one set, okay? And then everybody rotates around. The score between the hitters and the base runners are the same. So let's say those guys drive in 22 runs in that round. The runners and the, the batters get 22. Well, the way it rotates, there's defense one and defense two, they're not paired up together. So when the base runners come back around to hit, there's a different group of base runners that wasn't the hitters, if that makes sense. And I may be losing some people. So you're basically paired up and it's an individual competition. It takes about two hours. Um, it has been termed the MF game in our program because in, invariably, uh, you see Josh is dying laughing because he didn't think I was actually going to say that. Uh, but invariably somebody starts dying and they start getting MF'd and it, it turns back into a mental toughness drill. It turns into a execution drill and we try to put the clamps on them man it, it is how fast can you go how much pressure can you put on them can you get a freshman to break can you get a senior to pick somebody up can you can and it's just this it's just every single emotion you can draw out of these guys and it is it's the best thing we do and it's so funny because like they see it on the practice schedule and, and you post a practice schedule at 11 a.m and by 11 15 you know, it's, it's all through campus. Oh, we got, you know, we got the MF game today, whatever, blah, blah. But then they get out there and they start practicing and, and then they start talking shit. Hey man, you know, I got him on this team. And, and now all of a sudden they go from hating it to loving it. And it just creates this, this, a ton of testosterone in your program, which is a really positive thing. I love that. Um, and it sounds like most of your practices, um, are similar to that. So if we came to one of your practice, what do you think uh, a couple of things that we would notice would be? Uh, I think you would notice a lot of individual instruction. I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that guys, that guys noted, that guys notice is the only time we team practice is when we inter squad. Okay. So in the fall, we do not have team practice at three o'clock. Everything is groups, okay? And everything is waterfalled. Everything has gone down. So like one of the rules we abide by is no more than four guys in a cage without an additional coach, okay? So if we bring our, if we bring our infielders out, uh, you know, say we got seven, eight infielders, they go out, it's JJ, who's our hitting and infield coach, myself, and then our director of ops helping with the infielders. And, those, and we're just doing the infielders for 45 minutes. And then say the outfielders, or excuse me, the infielders go to the cage, the outfielders come out, we'll have two guys in the cage and I'll be doing the outfielders one-on-one. -on -one. I think the first thing guys would pick up is the individual development and, and the small group. You would expect that, you know, we're, we're out there. I mean, we typically walk on the field. Our first coach walks on the field at two and our last coach walks off the field about eight. And, and guys aren't out there for more than two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. And I think that's the first thing you look up and be like, when does practice start? I don't feel like it started and I, and I don't feel like it stopped. And, mm -hmm. and that's really, I think, the first thing that you would, you would take away is just the, the small group work that we do. Oh, fantastic. And again, you, you mentioned earlier in the show, you don't, 
you don't necessarily want to add a, a bunch to your plate. Uh, as far as resources go, you want to get really good at some of the different things that you, that you're already good at and you want to enhance those, uh, which I think that that's something that that's the trap that I fall into. You know, a guy, if you chase two or three rabbits, you don't catch any. Right. Uh, but if, if you had to uh, throw out some resources for these guys who are, are wanting to get better in the space that they're in or just some, some that have helped you along your journey, what would those be? The thing that uh, one of the things that I started doing um, three years ago that I feel like was maybe the best thing I did was uh, after every series or midweek game, I go back in and I, and I write notes because, because to me, you know, I say to our players all the time, you don't listen to anybody more than you listen to yourself. And that goes for all walks of life, man. And your players don't listen to you more than they listen to themselves. And so for me, like, I don't listen to anybody more than I listen to myself. And so for me, if I'm really going to learn and I'm really going to evolve and I'm really going to adapt, then I have to do a better job of listening to myself. And I have to be honest with myself. And the times that you're the most honest are when your emotions are the most raw. And so if, if we go through a series, we sweep, we get swept, uh, either that Sunday night or that Monday, I go into the Excel sheet that basically is just labeled coaches notes. And I just type out everything that I feel like I learned through that as a coach, as opposed to, and I know this may be the worst thing I've ever said, like I actively and avidly do not read. I do mm-hmm. not want to read. I don't want to hear what somebody else's opinion of leadership is. I don't mm-hmm. want to hear what somebody else has done to be successful. There's no book. There is no book on how to coach the Wofford baseball team in 2020. It's never mm-hmm. been written. And so for me, it is, I have to do a better job of listening to myself and me creating those notes and going back and reviewing those has really helped me kind of fine point what I'm trying to do. Cool. Do you uh, handwrite or like uh, Evernote? type it out type. now. Okay. I'm an avid note taker in game. Um, I got, a, I got a pretty, I got a pretty elaborate sheet that I have in game that, that basically tallies executions and our defensive chart and the things that we value. And then I have my notes, you know, post game notes, pregame notes, notes to the players, mm-hmm. notes to myself. And then, you know, when I go back, I have, you know, I have those notes that are basically sitting there that are, you know, basically a, a full page of notes at the end of each game. Um, and then I basically just go back through there and that kind of jogs my memory. And then I type them in. Something I've, I've, trying to get better at it. I type a lot, but you know, obviously, uh, which is easier to go back in and search, uh, especially cause I use Evernote and it, and it does uh, several different programs, but, uh, they talk about writing stuff down as like a 60% more of a chance of remembering. Uh, and that's something that we're trying to add during this time. So it's, it's been hit or miss, but it's something that, that I think you're right on you nail on the head as far as just, man, it's, especially once you're in the moment, how much do you forget by the time you get to the next day, because it's like, man, okay, all these different things, these wave of emotions just hit me and I need to write them all down now versus the next day when, when you can remember some different things and probably some, uh, some new things, but, uh, is is that intentional? You do it right after the game for that reason? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and to your point, Jonathan, man, that's why I like to write. So I, so I like to write down because, you know, it's all, it's also kind of therapeutic in game. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you know, a guy makes a mistake, a guy makes a mistake that you've been on him for forever. And, you know, emotionally you want to go get him. you know, but, but, you know, as a coach, man, like you need that guy, you need his next two at bats, you know, you, you know, he's been doing whatever, you know, he's been chasing bad pitches first pitch for the last two weeks. Cause he's just chasing his own ego and he does it again. And at bat too, and, you, and you're ready to just, you're ready to just jump his shit. And, and you can't because you need that guy's next two at bats. So for me, it's therapeutic to go back in there and say, you know, you know, write down, Hey, this guy needs to be better first pitches. And and so that way, at least it kind of, it kind of alleviates it from me and and allows that guy to play more freely because I've already, I've already kind of modified myself, so to speak. So that's why I like to to write because it it allows me to move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, A couple of questions from the sidebar. Uh, we, I think, Ryan, I think we answered your challenges recruiting, uh, at a mid major, but he also wanted to know uh, what are some different challenges that you're having to deal with right now with COVID-19? Uh, um, the, the biggest one is, is, uh, you know, we don't have grad school. So when, when these guys, when everybody got the year back, that, that was it, that was it, man. It was, you know, we don't, we don't get another shot at this thing, man. We don't, we don't get to run it back with our 10 seniors. Like a lot of guys do, we, you know, and, you know, we, we've had fifth year guys in the past before, but, you know, you got two, three years to game plan it, you know, 
you know, when our, by the time that we really knew what was going on, you know, it was the beginning of April and our guys were five weeks away from graduating and they, you know, that's the way they had planned it out. So, you know, for me, that's, that's been the biggest challenge is, is basically just accepting that it's been hard, man. And, and to tell you the truth, I have not slept a full night since our, since our season got canceled. I haven't slept through the night one time. And it's because of, uh, of the lack of closure that, that I know that we're going to get. Um, and it's the, you know, it's the, what if, I mean, we obviously were, you know, this was a, this was a team that we were looking forward to for a really long time. You know, we were off to a really good start and we were doing it really, really injured, which is what nobody knows, man. I mean, we were down Friday starter, Sunday starter, midweek starter, second bullpen arm, first baseman, catcher, DH, shortstop and center fielder. We were down all those things during that run. And then it, it basically started to get healthy as, as the season got canceled. And so for me, that's been the challenge. Um, I trust our players, you know, that, that question gets asked a lot. Hey man, what, what are you doing with your players? We trust our players. That, that's it, man. It, it's that simple. We trust our players and the guys that the one thing I've told our players is anytime shit hits the fan, which this obviously has, it's a separator, right? Because everybody goes back to their core principles. Everybody, everybody goes back to the, to exactly who they are. So this type of thing for me, it's just going to be a separator. The, the best players and the most disciplined players are going to be better on the back end of this. The lazy players are going to be worse. And now the gap is going to be even more. That gap would have been this much, you know, had everything, you know, been able to, to transpire the way we thought. But now right. the gap between the guys that you can trust and the guys you can't are going to get bigger because you basically put them on their own. And so for me, you know, I believe in our program. I believe in our program to the nth degree. And I've told our players over and over and over again, we are going to be better on the back end of this because we do it the right way. And because mm -hmm. we have individual accountability, our guys work, our, our guys are bought in. And I have, I have no doubt that no matter players come and go, coaches come and go, it, it all happens. But I know we're going to be better on the back end of this because I know our infrastructure is really strong. I love it. And uh, just add that to another tally of the consistent messaging that you're, that you're giving them, which fantastic. Uh, let me see. Zach asked, do you guys film practice? Uh, we, we do occasionally, not, not much. Um, you know, inter squads, we certainly, uh, we want to film. Um, the MF game gets filmed, um, you know, just basically to see that, but, you know, basically filming practice and watching that. Uh, no, we don't, we don't do it. Perfect. And let me see, there was one more, uh, for reactionary base running times. Kyle asked, uh, how are you measuring that? Oh, um, that is the, that is the, that is the, the hardest thing to do. So, you know, I'll tell you what we do not do. Okay. What we do not do is we do not time our guys, um, from first to second, you know, you see a lot of these guys that, Hey man, get out to a X number foot lead, 11 foot lead, 12 foot lead, whatever you want to do. You know, I'm going to go on your first move and I'm going to time you through the bag. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to do the pitcher and the catcher. And I'm going to do that math equation and all that, man. Like I got a five-year-old downstairs that can do that. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's, that's not coaching, man. That's, that's mathematics. And so to me, it is, you've got to, you've got to focus, man. You've got to lock in on these guys. You've got to be able to do it. And you know what you're looking for, but basically, you know, you just have to identify it. And, and some things that we try to kind of see are, how does a guy come out of his break? And I don't mean a steel break. How does a guy come out of a secondary? We've all seen those guys that, you know, the dude delivers to the plate and he flinches like a dog. You know what I mean? Like you walk up to a dog and you like clap at a dog and the dog like, you know, stops real quick. Guys do that sometimes. You know, guy delivers to the plate, you see that guy freeze and then he comes out. And then you see some guys that are just really smooth and are just really reactionary and they're just really comfortable and they can anticipate really well. Well, if you focus on those movements, if you focus on those individual movements enough, you're going to start to see a difference. And then the more you focus on it's, I mean, it's instant. And when we first started teaching our system, the way that we started teaching it, you know, it kind of took us a little while to identify, okay, this guy's an elite runner. This guy's a good runner. You know, we put numerical values on them. Okay. And you know, this guy, you know, the lower the number, the better, right? So, okay, this guy's a 14 runner. This guy's a 15 runner. This guy's a 16 runner, whatever. Okay. Well, it took, it used to take us like a week or two, three weeks to identify the difference between those two. Well, well now, and Josh sitting on here, I mean, you can identify it, you know, after you do it for a while, we can identify it in a day. And, you know, you start to see that you go recruiting. And so now it's, it's, you know, we've trained our coaches to kind of look for that. And so, you know, guys will come back and, you know, I'll be like, what kind of runner is he? And, you know, the typical response you get is he's a six, eight runner. 
Well, our coaches come back. I say, what kind of runner is he? He goes, 14 runner. I go, okay. And so that's all inclusive. That's speed. That's reactionary skills. But there's, there's no simple formula, man. There's, there's no mathematical formula because this game is played in real time. This game is played in real time with real time decisions. And you got all these analytical dudes in the back coming up with numbers that are not in real time. And the, the talented coaches can read, adjust, and make decisions in real time with real information. Anybody can read a stat sheet and put a matchup together. It's can you adjust in real time? Can you, can you adapt to, to rate a variable change? Those are the things that make an elite coach. And an elite coach is nothing more than a guy who has an elite attention to detail on what they're trying to improve on. That's it. I, I don't know more than anybody else. I just really trust my, my skill set to lock in and evaluate a base runner. And I think that's why we can do it. An elite coach has an elite attention to detail. Can you say that one more time? <laughs> an elite coach has an elite attention to detail of focus on the areas that they're trying to improve. Okay. Sorry. I had to make sure I got that down. I uh, love that. And so, uh, man, that's, that's a, that's a great, great segue to um, the end, I guess, because I, man, that, that's a great quote. It's the best one I've heard in a while. So um, if, if any of our listeners, whether that's anybody in the chat, anybody watching the show, or just anybody that is listening to this at a later date, uh, is there a good way to get in touch with you? I know you're not really on social media, uh, but what, what would be the best spot online to get in touch with you? Uh, just an email would be fine. Um, internet TJ at Wofford.edu. Um, that's on there. Um, you know, and, and you know, we've been very fortunate, uh, to have some success and we've been very fortunate to have a lot of guys reach out. Um, you know, we've had high school coaches come and watch us practice. We've had big league teams come and watch us practice. We've had, uh, everything in between and yeah, we're open, we're honest, we're, we're willing to share. Um, you know, I've had uh, dozens of conversations with coaches I've never met. A guy just send me an email and say, Hey man, you know, would you be willing to chat? Would you be willing to talk? And, uh, you know, you always try to make time for it. So just a simple email, we'll get it started. And I mean, I got no problem, man. I'm, I'm pretty open. So not really, don't really try to hide anything. I love it. Well, again, it's, it's been a pleasure to get to learn from you today and get to chat with you. Looking forward to our relationship growing, going forward, but uh, I like to end the show and something that, that I really, that I want to hear from you. If you could give us, you know, your best piece of advice, uh, you've got an array of coaches, college coaches, high school coaches, pro coaches that are here, but uh, what was some, some of the best advice you ever got or some of the best advice that you would give us? The, the best thing, the best quality that I see in coaches is the ability to find work. It's that simple. It's the ability to find work. And, you know, I am very fortunate in the fact that I am a head coach and there are just very, very few head coaches out there. And the number one quality of a head coach to me is the ability to command a room, which, which is multifaceted. And the number one ability for any assistant at any level is the ability to find work. And if you, if you have that, the best coaches that I've ever had have the ability to find work. And if you're looking for direction and you're looking for somebody else to do it for you, uh, you're not going to last very long, man. You got it. It just goes back to that high internal motor and you got to be creative enough to find your own work. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which could include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.